Welcome to the Commission Podcast. We've been spending our summer at Revive 2019, Commission's annual Bible festival. Today we're going to hear from Steve Jeffrey. Steve is one of the authors of Pierce for Our Transgressions, and in his seminar, he's going to be speaking on the heart of the cross, what that means, and why so many theologians object to this doctrine. What we're talking about today is what Phil, in the title of this seminar, called The Heart of the Cross. Right at the heart of the message of the cross is the Bible's teaching that God has given himself for the sake of the world. God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us the death and punishment and curse that's due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. That is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. The doctrine is substitutionary, that is to say it's God did something as our substitute in our place. And what he did for us was suffer penalty, hence penal substitutionary atonement. You talk about a penal colony, don't you? Meaning a prison, a place where people are punished. Well, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is the doctrine that God is our substitute in being punished to atone for our sins. And that's what we're talking about today. And what I wanted to do was to start by showing you how much you already know about this. We're not going to spend very long looking at the obvious go-to passages for reasons that will become clear in a minute or two. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you find the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement in there, Richard? You get lost in the pronouns, don't you? God made him, who is Jesus, to be sin, like he's righteous, and God made him to be sin so that we might become righteousness in him. Next up, uh, 1 Peter 3, 18a. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Um, Can somebody read the next text, which is Isaiah 53? Somebody should definitely, um, I love Isaiah 53. Is this working? It is, yeah, wonderful. Could you read that out for us? So verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, then the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right. Preach it, sister. Um, let's have um, Galatians three thirteen and 14. Mark, you can preach it to us because you're actually a preacher. So <laughs> give it to us and then, then tell us, try and, try and just paraphrase it and expand on it for us. Go on. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit. Right, brilliant. So how does that teach penal substitutionary atonement, Mark? Well, so again, he's, um, he's perfect and yet he becomes... A, a curse. We're cursed under the law, mm-hmm. and he becomes a curse for us. So there's, there's, there's the penal component there. There's the substitution component right, right, right. that we might be blessed. Right, wonderful. And receive wonderful. the blessing. Yeah, it's like you're getting the picture, aren't you? That this doctrine shouts and screams at you from the Bible. Um, let's pass the microphone just to the back, and we'll have somebody read Romans three. Yeah, just pass it back until somebody wants to. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Wonderful, thank you very much. Um, This is probably 
This has been written on and preached on more than any other passage on the atonement, I suspect. Um, Leon Morris, I think, one of the great biblical commentators of the 20th century, called this paragraph, of which this is a part, the most important paragraph ever written. Notice how it describes um, what God did. God put forward Christ as a propitiation, that is a sacrifice designed to turn away wrath at sin. So God the Father has set Christ on the cross as the one who will turn aside his wrath for us, and he did that uh, to demonstrate his justice because he won't leave sin unpunished. God is not the sort of God who just say, oh, don't worry about it, relax, chill out. And he did this because he wanted to uh, grant forgiveness to us so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Next verse, verse 25, thank you. Right, now, here's, why did I make you read all those? It was to point out to you that you don't need a seminar like this for you to go and explain to another Christian or perhaps defend against a critic the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement from those texts. In fact, you, you, you should be in absolutely no doubt that the scriptures teach that God gave himself in the, per, in the person of his son to suffer instead of us the punishment due for sins just after reading those texts, right? You already know a very great deal and we have 40 minutes left, so what are we going to do? Now, here's what we're going to do. Here, here's what has happened. A problem has arisen in the church in the way that we articulate the doctrine of the atonement. What's happened is that we have started to focus very narrowly and in a great deal of depth on a small number of texts, including those five. And that has become necessary because, as I said, there are too many theologians who need the obvious explaining to them, uh, not to be rude about theologians, but... Um, What's happened is that the discussion has become narrowly focused on those texts in order to defend penal substitutionary atonement from its critics. The book that Christian, you mentioned that I was I helped to write, we actually didn't look at much of the Bible. I mean, we looked at lots of different Bible verses, but we didn't like take a huge overall sweep of the Bible. We, we weren't really trying to do that. We were trying to, it's a very, very narrowly defined aim just to prove that this thing is in the Bible. But in the process, what's happened and this is kind of inevitable when you let your theology be dictated by criticisms of it. We created an image in which the Bible is like this really big doughy muffin with about seven raisins in it. You know, not the sort you get from Pret or Costa, the sort you get from Aldi. You know, and we've created the idea of an, uh, the impression of an Aldi muffin theology of the atonement, where like the whole Bible is this. Oh, oh look, I found a current finally, Galatians three, Hallelujah. You know, and and that's a real shame because what's actually happened in the process of digging very deeply into a small number of texts, we've risked having our vision of the scope and the breadth of the teaching of Scripture massively stunted. We just don't look at huge swathes of the Bible with the expectation of finding this teaching of the atonement in it. That is, until now. My aim in the next 35, 40 minutes or so is to look at some of the themes which are connected with the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement and see how they are expressed in the most unexpected places. I was going to call this seminar Atonement in Unexpected Places. See, because what, what I want to do is just to show you 
that it is not the case that the orthodox Christian doctrine of the atonement is half a dozen currents in an Aldi muffin. Okay? It, is, it is woven into the very fabric of scripture. And if you start to read the narratives of scripture with kind of your, your eyes attuned to the gloom, and some of the Bible feels gloomy, like Lamentations and those long lists of names that Jimmy and I were talking about earlier. You know, but if you read your you know, headlights on and you, your eyes get used to the dimness, you can suddenly see atonement-related themes all over the place. Just think about that definition of the doctrine again. We will be looking for themes like somebody giving themselves for somebody else, especially divine self-giving, God giving himself for somebody else or for other people. We'll be looking for themes like an individual or a group of people suffering in the place of others or suffering for the benefit of others, especially if what they're suffering is the punishment for sins. And what we'll be doing is, it's like all the little jigsaw puzzle pieces of the atonement are found not only all concentrated in a few places, but also scattered far and wide. And I want to show you, get you excited about the whole Bible again, because for some of us, you know, we need to be excited about you know, one Samuel. It's like, but speaking of first Samuel, I mean, that would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? Should we, have you got a Bible? What I want to do, well, this is going to be probably the longest example. I want to show you how in 1 Samuel and then a few other places, um, these themes connected with the atonement are found. And I think it will expand our vision of God and of the scriptures. Hopefully it will also lead to some um, practical implications, perhaps some particularly surprising ones. You see, it turns out the Bible does not teach only that Jesus must suffer for the sake of other people. Jesus suffering for the sake of other people is unique, of course, but any husband knows, if you've read Ephesians 5, every husband is called to suffer for his wife. It might surprise you to discover that uh, ministers are called to suffer for their churches and all of us are called to suffer for each other. And all of these are part of the fabric of the Bible's teaching about substitutionary suffering for the sake of others. And I want to show you some of those things. But we're going to have some fun. We're going to start first in 1 Samuel. Now, uh, 1 Samuel, let's just um, remind ourselves of the background. What's happening in 1 Samuel is that the nation of Israel is in chaos at the end of the era of the judges. Um, at the end of the book of Judges, every, uh, there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Uh, the book of Ruth is in there to show you how God is going to fix the problem because you start with a family that's dying and going into exile, the family of uh, Naomi and Elimelech and the two sons, Marlon and Kili, and they all go into exile in Moab. They all die, well, apart from Naomi. Then they come back with Ruth, who turns out to be the source of the nation's future because the, the genealogy at the end of chapter 4, the last name in the book of Ruth is the name... David. And so what we now need to do is to get from the chaos at the end of the book of Judges to King David. And the man who's going to bridge the gap is Samuel, monumental figure in the history of the people of Israel. But it turns out that the problem is not just with the monarchy or the lack of it. The problem is also with the priesthood. And that's what I want to show you. Get into 1 Samuel. So chapter 1, um, basically we get introduced to Samuel, who's born, and then he's kind of hanging out at the temple, uh, not the temple, the tabernacle, or whatever tent it is that they worshipped God in. Hannah, his mum, gives thanks for him in chapter 2. And then we discover chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. We discover what kind of chaos and mess the worship of the people is in. Look at chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, Eli is the priest... Okay. Uh, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he'd thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, or the fork brought up the, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, and this is where it's really terrible, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw meat and if the man said no 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 let them burn the fat first then then and then take as much as you wish he would say no you must give it now if not i'm going to beat you up and take it by force thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the lord for the men treated the offering of the lord with contempt weird so what what happens is the priest is gone the priesthood has gone really bad because when you're going to make your offering the priest takes the meat before the fat has been cut off and burned for the Lord. Why is that such a big deal? Putting himself first, yes? What's more valuable, raw meat or cooked meat? Yeah, raw meat, probably more valuable in this ancient context. It can be sold more easily and so on. Um, But the fat is supposed to be burned as an offering to the Lord. Instead of burning the fat as an offering to the Lord, the priest would say, no, no, leave the fat on there. I can't be bothered with worshipping God. Just give me this stuff because I'm entitled to it, and then you can go home. And the, the people of Israel were therefore unable to offer sacrifices of atonement to the Lord. There's no functioning priesthood, and there's no functioning sacrificial system. Now, what are you supposed to do when you sin in ancient Israel? Make a sacrifice. Yeah, make a sacrifice. Go to the priest and say, confess your sins. Yeah, and play your hand, place your hand on the head of the animal. Confess your sins over the animal. And then the, the animal will be sacrificed. And you'll be like, phew, thank goodness. The animal has been sacrificed in my place. And the priesthood is all doing its job. And I, I can repent and turn away from my sin. And I've been cleansed by the blood of the animal. So what are you supposed to do if there is no priesthood and no sacrifice? There's no way of being reconciled with God. So the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord because they're treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, what is the Lord going to do to his people if there is no atonement for sin? This is a more difficult question. If there is no atonement for sin and people are not worshipping him, you turn back to Deuteronomy 28 and you find a long list of warnings If you don't worship the Lord in the right way, then all these terrible things are going to happen. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country and your wombs will will be barren and there'll be no food in the fields. And this long list of curses goes on and on and on and on and on until right at the end of the chapter, Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 and 65. What is going to happen to you if there is no atonement for sin? The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known and these there among those nations you shall find no respite no resting place for the sole of your foot the lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul you'll be scattered among the nations if there is no atonement for sin what's the one word for being scattered among the nations in the bible exile so what's going to happen then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when there's no atonement for sin. What are you expecting? Exile. The people are going to be exiled. Right, well, let's find out what happens. Should we read on? Chapter 3 is um, the Lord calling Samuel, the familiar narrative when, fascinatingly, Samuel hears the voice of the Lord, but the old guard priesthood Eli 
doesn't know what's going on, you know, and his eyes are failing and he can't hear very well. You know, you've got a picture there of the dysfunctional old priesthood and Samuel, the young man who knows the Lord, right? Then what happens in chapter four is where we start to see um, uh, the problem arising and you start to see exile on the horizon. Verse, chapter four, verse one, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So what has happened? Opening skirmishes. What has happened to the people of Israel? Yeah, the rout. Beautiful, old-fashioned English word. Like 4,000 widows, 4,000 families of orphaned children, fatherless children, not orphaned yet. 4,000 men slain on the field of battle. Well, it's what you might expect then, isn't it? If the Lord is going to send you into exile, the first step on the field of battle and 4,000 of your men are cut down with a sword. So what do they do? Well, it's very interesting. Verse 3, when the troops came to the camp, the elder of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Good question, that, right? You should have been asking that of the priests. Let them bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of the enemies. Go get the Ark, you see, because that will solve all our problems. If you've got God with us, it's going to be absolutely fine, unless the reason why you're in trouble is because God is with you. Like, the last thing you want to have close to you is an angry God. So you go to the Lord's table in Corinth, and you die because you've come too close to the Christ against whom you're rebelling by your arrogant attitude to the poor who have less than you. Do not come close to the living God and do not bring him close to you if you're in rebellion against him and are not reconciled to him. Don't do it. But it's what the people of Israel did, presumptuously assuming that because they got the Ark of God, it's all going to be all right, like some sort of talisman. <laughs> they just got the Ark, it's going to be fine. Well, let's have a look. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God here's the heart of the problem you see little hint one Samuel is a is a genius piece of literary construction and all these little hints about what's going on in the narrative are dropped in throughout it and when the ark of the covenant of the Lord is brought in then uh, Hophni and Phinehas are with it you see that's a hint about what the problem is going to be verse 5 as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid because they said, oh no, a God has come into the camp. Oh no, we're in big trouble. Woe to us. For nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, because remember this God is the God who overthrew the previous slave master, Pharaoh. So maybe we're gonna be like that and we're gonna be slaves of, take courage, men, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews. So the Philistines fought, you see, and the thing is that the living God was not for Israel, but against them. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And what's gonna happen? What are you expecting to happen? What happens to the people of God when there is no atonement for their sins and the Lord their God turns against them? Where do they go? Exile. And they fled every man to his home. That's a bit strange. You're supposed to go into exile 
and you've gone back to your home. Well, not everybody's gone back home. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, but no exile. You've all gone back home. Where's the exile? Verse 11. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, there's some good news, but who's gone into exile? It's not the Israelites. Who's, been, who's gone into exile? God. The ark of God has been captured. It looks like God let his people go home, and he's allowed the ark to be captured by... Is that really what's going on? Well, let's read on. What happens is in verse 12 and following is the news of the defeat and the news of Hophni and Phinehas's death spreads, and it finally reaches... Eli and Eli hears about all this chaos and as soon as he hears about it he falls over back, backwards from his seat by the side of the gate verse 18 and he's old man and he's, he's too heavy and he lands on his neck and breaks his neck you know and anybody who's ever played rugby knows if you're a big guy and you land heavily you know you can really damage your neck and if you're not in great shape like Eli probably wasn't you know he died right in verse 18 and then his daughter-in-law the wife of Phineas um, dies in childbirth and about the time of her death, the woman, women attending her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't answer, didn't pay attention. Tragedy. Like everybody connected with the priesthood is dying. But the people of God are not going into exile. Verse 21. She named the child Ichavod, saying, Ichavod means the glory has departed. Or, or no, it means there's no glory. Chavod is glory or heaviness. The, the glory has departed from Israel. And then you've got a little footnote. You've got your Bible's little footnote. The verb translated departed means gone into exile. The glory of God has, has gone into exile from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Verse 22, she said, like, you didn't get it first time, everybody. Like, There's a little helping hint for Bible study leaders down the ages in all your knowing God groups. The glory has gone into exile. Isn't that astonishing? Right? You can have a priesthood that is rotten and corrupt. And we didn't read the bit about the priests sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Like, not being funny about it, but not much changes in corrupt churches. Right? And you can have the entire nation, even those who would like to be able to offer sacrifices, unable to atone for their sins. To, rather, better, to avail themselves of the atonement that God has provided. And the nation should be scattered from one end of the earth to the other. And instead, the Lord himself goes into exile for them. Like, how gracious is he going to be? Like, it's not like they're really repentant and really sorry. He really has not chosen you because you're the best of all the people. He's, he's decided to go into exile for you, even though you're the worst of all the people. Is basically what he does at the end of chapter 4. Okay. But now what? You see, now we've got a problem, right? Because, okay... We've avoided one problem. The people are not in exile. The people are back in their homes, minus 30-something thousand of them. Um, but the Ark of God is, you know, in Philistia, and there's no priesthood, and there's no sacrifice. So what are you going to do next? Presumably, what the Lord wants to do is to rebuild. He's going to rebuild the priesthood, rebuild some kind of sacrificial system, and then come back. Because only if he does that can the people of Israel be saved. Like, the people of Israel will not be saved if the ark stays in Philistia. 
If the people of Israel don't have a priesthood, they'll be no different from any other nation. If they don't have sacrifices that the Lord will accept, they'll be just like every other Gentile nation, lost. They might as well be in exile, frankly, if they don't have the presence of God with them. So let's see what God does. Okay, chapter five. When the, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, and this is the bit that if you're doing it in Sunday school, you just love this chapter, don't you? It's like, I got chapter five, yes. I didn't get the song of Hannah because that's really hard to do in a Sunday school lesson. You know, it's too, too long for them to learn. Um, Words don't really fit with any good tunes. But chapter 5 is awesome because you get to draw pictures of this. The Philistines captured the Ark of God and they brought it to Ebenezer, from Ebenezer to Ashdod, one of their towns. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. What's Dagon? Their God, right? So they do with it what they do with all the kind of divine idolatrous trophies. They plonk it in their sanctuary because the Philistines were a, uh, a polytheistic people like most people in the ancient world and they didn't believe you had to be devoted to any one god. Like You could have multiple gods if you wanted. You just had to make sure you pray to the right one at the right time to get the right thing. And um, so they think, well, we'd stick the Ark of God in here because clearly Dagon is stronger than the Ark. And so God has gone into exile. Yahweh, the Lord, has gone into exile. We'll put him kind of at the feet of Dagon, our God, in the temple where he belongs, because our God defeated him. But he's not too bad because he did defeat Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so maybe he's kind of middle-level God. But God's not having any of it. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And all these little Sunday school models where you pull the tab at the bottom and the, ark, the Dagon goes, clink, clink. You like that? You got one of those? Right, awesome. <laughs> And then they so thought, oh, Dagon's fallen over. Probably just a coincidence. Verse 4. They rose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen down on the ground before the ark of God, and his head had fallen off. And his hands had fallen off. It's like, it's just hilarious. It's supposed to be funny, by the way. Like, you're allowed to laugh. Like, you're allowed to laugh in Judges chapter 3 at that fat bloke when he... Yeah? And it's not the, it's not the intestines that come out, okay? It doesn't say intestines. It's a perfectly good word in Hebrew for intestines, and it's not that. Ask the Hebraist back, right? You know, yeah. Um, that's why the priests in Dagon, of Dagon, and all who enter the house of Dagon, don't tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day, because it's like this, this, this superstition developed. Dagon's head have to step over the threshold. And one of the prophets, I forget who it is, is it Amos criticizes people who step over the threshold, like the, the superstitious people who, who um, uh, obviously still got some adherence to Dagon. Okay, so the hand of the Lord, verse six, are heavy against the people of Ashdod, and they're terrified. And so the men of Ashdod said, "Well, we're not going to have this thing here." So they say, oh, "What should we do?" Verse eight. And they said, I oh, know, let's send it someplace else. Let's send it to the men of Gath. Men of Gath say, hmm, not sure I like the sound of this. So they brought it to Gath, and after the Lord had brought it round, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, with the tumours, the same tumours that they've got, like big lumps, you know, I don't know, some non-malignant swelling, but, you know, skin diseases were common in the ancient world, but not all at once like this. God's doing something strange. And so wherever you take the Ark of God, God's like too hot to handle, too much for them to cope with, so the men of Gath say, forget this, take it to Ekron. And the Ekronites are like, no, 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 sorry, guys. We, we, we saw, you know, we're getting to spot the pattern here. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They said, they brought it around to kill us again. Like, get that God away from here. And so they're trying to, they sit down at the end of that sort of section. They're trying to work out what to do. So, well, there's a solution. Let's get rid of it. Let's just send it back where he came from. Chapter six. The Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. <laughs> seven months months. Quick aside, where else do you get seven periods of time in the Bible? 
creation. So seven days to create the world, seven months to recreate Israel, or maybe the Bible is just full of irrelevant coincidences and details that you, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I told you that it's a nuanced and subtle book, lots of little hints of things that are going on. Maybe the Lord is going to recreate his people. Verse 2, let's find out. The Philistines call the priest and says, what do we do? And they're like, well, you know, send it back to its place. And, but if you send it away, don't send it empty. You've got to send some offerings with it. So they kind of, in an uh, uh, ironic but unintentional gesture of self-mocking, they, they send it back with five models of tumours and five models of mice to represent the cities and the leaders of the Philistines. So the Philistine leaders are like mice and the Philistine cities are like boils on the face of the earth. Yeah, kind of like that really. Um, Pagans have a way of mocking themselves unintentionally. Um, And verse six, um, you know, don't um, uh, harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did. That's an interesting point because remember what the, um, when the people of Israel were sent away from Egypt and the Pharaoh, what did they say they were going out into the desert to do? Remember? Worship. Sacrifice to our God. So they've obviously remembered that. They know that when the Lord goes out from somewhere or other, he likes to be provided with worship materials. Interesting. So they say, verse 7, Now, this is where you need to pay really close attention. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Why? Bizarre. What's going to happen with these things? Let's find out. What they do is they put the cows on the road, and they have this little kind of... They think if it carries on going all the way up to Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh then we've done the right thing. If the, cow, if the cows wander off, taking the ark someplace else, then, well, I don't know, we don't know what's happened. But anyway, what happens is, um, verse 9, it goes all the way up to Beth Shemesh. Uh, sorry, verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, like this. And they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines are like checking. Yeah, they went straight. Obviously, this was the right thing to do. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh, the house of the sun, literally, it's in Israel were reaping in the wheat, har- the wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes, and they saw the cart, and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. Now, just think about this for a second. Cows, wood, stone. Why? An altar, yes. If you make an altar, Exodus 20, either make it out of dirt, just mound it up out of, out of soil, or let it be made of stone, but don't use a tool on it. Yeah? Not cut with human hands, which is why the stone in Daniel chapter 2 is like an altar when it swells and fills the whole earth. So it's the people of God at worship when they're gathered together around their God who will triumph and conquer the nations like the stone that landed on the feet of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 and smashed it in all four to pieces. Yeah? So the Bible is full of all these little connections. So this stone is a sacrificial altar. And the cows know what to do with it. See, they're walking along the road, head straight for this stone. Verse 14, they get into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and they're like stopping there, like, moo, moo. And there's like this stone altar, and they're like looking at Joshua, like, moo, moo. Like, what do we do? Well, let's read on. They split up the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Very good. So, tell me about the cow again, cows. Female, never had a yoke put on them. 
What kind of a weird offering is that? Where in the Bible have you found a sacrificial animal that's a female cow on which no yoke has ever come? Tell me about the offerings in Leviticus, for example. Any, any female cows in Leviticus? What do you get in Leviticus? You occasionally get bulls. Mostly they're from the flock, sheep or goats. Most of them are male in Leviticus. There's one example, there's a couple of examples where it could be male or female. There's one example in Leviticus 3, I think, when it could be a female cow. But there's nothing in the book of Leviticus about uh, a cow on which no yoke has ever come. So why has the Lord arranged for a cow, two cows, on which no yoke has ever come, to find their way back? Well, what's special about this sacrifice? Where in the Bible do you find a sacrificial cow that's female, on which no yoke has ever been placed. So the priesthood, mm, only in that it's sacrificed by them. Numbers 19. Go Bibles, find Numbers 19. It's really, really freaky. See, the Lord could have sent a flock of goats if he'd wanted goat sacrifices, or a flock of lambs if he'd wanted lamb sacrifices, but Numbers 19... Laws for purification. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring to you a red heifer, female cow, without blemish, on which no yoke has ever come. Whoa. So of all the sacrificial offerings that the Lord could possibly have arranged, he arranged for the Leviticus 19 red heifer sacrificial offering. And nobody knows what the Leviticus... Uh, numbers... Did I say Leviticus? Numbers 19 red heifer sacrificial offering is for. Until now. Because you're about to find out. Does anybody know what the, Levitic, the Numbers 19 red heifer offering was for? You know all the different offerings are for different things? Unintentional sins, sins of the priests, sins of the people. What's this one for? Look in Numbers 19. See if you can find out. I'll show you. Verse 11, verse 14. Purification. Purification in what circumstances? Verse 11, verse 14. Yes? Death. Death. Who dies? If, when who's died? A person. And then who's the person who needs to be purified? Whoever touches them. Right. So if somebody has died and you've touched them, you need to be purified with this offering. Verse 14. What circumstances are highlighted there? <coughs> Anyone who's with them in a particular place? In a tent? Right. So, I know we'd like a long, long wandering walk from 1 Samuel. Don't worry, we're going to get back to it. Um, Numbers 19 is the specific offering for you if you've touched a dead body or been in a tent with a dead person. Now, why might that be useful for the people of Israel at this stage in their history back in 1 Samuel? Right, because like 30-something thousand of them have just died, so they need to be purified. So a whole bunch of people will have been in contact with dead bodies on the battlefield, one reason. But what about the tent? They've all gone back to their tents, correct. 
although it doesn't say tents in the text of 1 Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel. We're going to figure this out. There is only one mention of a tent in 1 Samuel before this point. The only mention of a tent in 1 Samuel is in chapter 2, verse 22. What's the tent? Look at it, look carefully. The tent of meeting, where what happened? Right. The tent, the only tent mentioned in 1 Samuel before this point, is the tent of meeting, the tent of worship, where Hophni and Phinehas and the other corrupt priests used to sleep with the women at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and where they used to obviously interact with all the people all the time. So maybe when those people came to the tent and they met with the priests, they were touching a dead man. Maybe. That would figure, wouldn't it? And what's really intriguing, you then look up all the references to death in 1 Samuel up to this point. Every single one of them, apart from one which says the Philistines died, concerns, guess what, the family of the priests. The verb to die appears six or seven times. In chapter 2, verse 25, it's the Lord's will to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. Chapter 2, verses 33 and 34, there's a prophecy about the death of Eli and his house. In chapter 4, verse 11, Hophni and Phinehas died. In chapter 4, verse 17, Eli hears that Hophni and Phinehas have died. Chapter 4, verse 18, Eli dies. And in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, you get the verb twice, Phinehas' wife dies in childbirth. So what did the land need to be cleansed from? They'd all been in contact with a dead and corrupt priesthood. Some women rather close of proximity. Other people just, you know, every time, with a well-intentioned, faithful few in Israel, they rock up to the tabernacle. They're supposed to find a man who will give life to them, and they find a man who's cursed and full of death, even though he's still walking around temporarily until God puts him to death. And so what they need is the Numbers 19 red heifer sacrifice, except there's a problem. Go back to Numbers 19. How is the efficacy of this sacrifice confirmed. What you do in verse 9, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It's a sin offering. Basically, what you do, you have this heifer sacrificed and you get its ashes and you put the ashes in a big bucket in a clean bucket and every time somebody touched a dead body what they'd have to do is they'd go along and they'd have sprinkling of this water on them after three days and after seven days I think you have to do it again and after that they're clean so we're going to go back to 1 Samuel and try and figure out where the sprinkling is because like until you've sprinkled the water on somebody you've not done with the cleansing for sin so you go back to 1 Samuel 7 well, uh, 3 to 7 try and find the sprinkling of water so uh, chapter 6 verse 14 they sacrifice this thing verse 15 the Levites do this stuff with a box and they put it on the stone and they offer burnt sacrifices that's all good then there's this all kind of mess in the rest of the chapter where the people look at the ark and you shouldn't look at the ark because when the ark is in the tabernacle you're supposed to have it behind a screen and then when you move the ark anywhere you take the screen down and hold it like this and place it over the ark so nobody ever looks at the ark not even the high priest because it's dark in there there's no light so nobody would ever look at God 
Nobody ever looked at the ark, I mean. But these people looked at the ark, really stupid thing to do, so they're put to death. Where's the, where's the outpouring of water? Huh. Chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, kind of foreign god, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they just served the Lord. No, sac- no sprinkling of water. Verse 5. Samuel said, gather all Israel to me at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Verse 6. So they gathered, like all the people of Israel, and what did they do? They gathered, they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. Poured it on the ground. Now, where in any of the sacrificial regulations does it say you should pour water on the ground? Absolutely nowhere. There is no single mention of a pouring of water ritual in any of the sacrificial regulations. So why are you pouring water here? It's like, I'll tell you why. Because Samuel knows that the red heifer thing hasn't been done yet. We need, to find all the, we need to find all the unclean people and we need to sprinkle water on them. And then he's confronted with the whole nation. He's like, oh my goodness, what do we do? I'll tell you what, you're all so filthy. I've got a better idea. I'm just getting this bucket. It's like, if I purify the land, maybe the purity will spread. Purify the whole land from this point on. And then let's see what the Lord does. And then you get to the end of chapter 7 and you get a replay of what happened back in chapter 3. Where in chapter 3, remember you had a battle and they had the Ark of the Lord with them and they lost and the Lord went into exile. And now they have a replay of the battle, the battle at Ebenezer. And the people of Israel are victorious because the living God is with them. Right. Because what the Lord did, and they've got some kids coming in here so we've got one minute and then we're going to finish. What the Lord did was that he saw his people were corrupt and ruined and the priesthood, the very things that were supposed to purify the people were wrecked and ruined and contaminated with sin. And the people deserved to go into exile. So he said, tell you what, I've got a better idea. I'll go into exile. And then I'll come back bringing precisely the sacrifice that's needed to purify the land of all this filth and immorality. And we'll just start again. And so they have this battle. And they win and the people of Israel are victorious and the Philistines don't bother them again for a couple of decades until David finally puts an end to them and their giant Goliath. So when you get to Hebrews 13, and then we're going to finish, promise. You're trying to preach a sermon, which is probably what the book of Hebrews originally was, to people who you're urging them not to go back to their old covenant corrupt ways of life which have been contaminated because the temple and the priest have all been ruined and everything. You want them to come to Christ, yeah, to a better covenant, a better priest, a better sacrifice and you want to find a way of rounding off all the things that, is, that are wonderful about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. You get to chapter 13 verse 12 Jesus also suffered, and what do you highlight about his suffering? outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's a really weird thing to draw attention to. Jesus suffered outside the tent, outside the gate of the city to sanctify the people. Where is the only sacrifice in the Bible which is conducted outside the city? It's the Numbers 19 red heifer sacrifice. That is the picture of Christ that the author of Hebrews leaves us with because he is the one who can purify this wrecked and ruined and rotten people from all their immorality which has stopped even the priesthood working and he can just start all over again. 
Merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you've shown us at least a little bit here this afternoon how your self-giving care for your people is woven into the fabric of Scripture and found in the most unexpected places. We thank you that you've atoned for our sins. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for Jesus in whom your love is embodied, whose blood was poured out to cleanse us. We pray that, just as the author of Hebrews says, we will be like him. We'd go to him outside the city and we'd bear the disgrace that he bore so that we may lead others to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Co-Mission Podcast. Don't forget, early bird tickets for Revive 2020 are available now. Go to commission.org slash revive to book your tickets today.